Um, If you have your Bibles tonight, open them please to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young woman, women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he is winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said unto her, all that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself and there a woman was lying at his feet and he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. Then he said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown me more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request, for all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman." Now it is true that I'm a close relative, however, there is a relative closer than I. Stay this night, and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of parley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of of barley you gave to me. For he said to me, do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. We should be thoroughly impressed by Ruth uh, by this time, uh, at this point in our story. She has proven to be a survivor. I'm a survivor, I will tell you that, and so I admire her greatly. She is a woman of great character. She's loyal. She's steadfast. She has upheld a vow that she made to her mother-in-law in chapter 1. She's been working diligently to provide and care for her. Her devotion is admirable. Her loyalty is praiseworthy. Uh, I, I will tell you that my heart grieves when I see the lack of loyalty and devotion in the world today. Those traits were paramount in in Ruth's life, and they should be in ours as well. I've told you several times that we cannot lose sight of the fact uh, that there was a culture in Ruth's time that was different than the one we're living in today. And that culture is vital to our storyline. While Ruth has been faithful to care for Naomi and work hard to provide for her, we must keep in mind that both women were widows with no man to help them survive. At this particular time in history, a woman's only true security was in a man. If you recall, Naomi reiterated that very thing to Ruth on the way to Bethlehem from Moab. You'll remember uh, she said to to Ruth and and her other daughter-in-law, Orpha, she said, go find rest in the house of a husband. Naomi knew that without a husband, her daughter-in-law's lives would be difficult at best. Marriages in Bible times were usually negotiated, and uh, fathers, or in some case brothers, uh, did the negotiating. Remember, Ruth's family was still back in Moab. She is in Bethlehem at the time of this story, and we haven't heard from them at all. Scripture's silent about them. But what we do know is that she was a foreigner living in Bethlehem. And mixed marriages were frowned on. 
In her book, The Gospel of Ruth, Carolyn Curtis James says, There is not a man to speak for Ruth. Another painful reminder that a widow has no voice. Even if there was a man to advocate on Ruth's behalf, she has no bargaining power at all. No dowry, no social connections, no political advantages to bring to the table. Contrary to our Western tendency to place romance above all other considerations when it comes to the choice of a marriage partner, in Naomi's day, marriages cemented strategic alliances for families. It secured important social, economic, and political benefits and the promise of progeny. Based on the culture's standards for evaluating prospective brides, Ruth was out of luck. Worst of all, her foreign ancestry and long history of barrenness added a double negative to her deficiencies. Things were not looking good for Ruth and her mother. And her mother-in-law knew it. And so in chapter 3, we see Naomi working a plan. She was devising a plan. Verse 1 says, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well for you? Uh, it's interesting to me. That word security is very interesting. It's the same word that, that Naomi used in chapter 1 when she said, Go find rest in the house of a husband. Same word. And what that tells me is, is that that word security there, it speaks of what a home should be like. It, it speaks of rest and a place of security. It speaks of what a marriage should be like. Our marriages should be a place where we can find security. Our marriages should be a place where we can find rest. Our homes, oh, can I just tell you that our homes should be a place of rest and security. Naomi said, shall I not go find security for you? She, she's taking it on as her responsibility, and she's devising a plan to take care of Ruth now that she's been taking care of her. She's fully aware that Ruth will probably outlive Naomi, and, and, and she knows that she's not going to be around forever, and she, she doesn't want to leave Ruth alone. Life may be difficult for the two of them at this point in the story, but without Naomi, Ruth's difficulties will only escalate. Ruth is a widow. She's a foreigner. She's a woman. And she's destined for a very difficult life without a husband. Naomi's concern for Ruth's well-being is, is valid. And so she devises this plan, and her plan is risky. Her plan has an eye on Boaz, this man who, whose field Ruth has been gleaning in. And, and she knows that Boaz is a man of character, and, and he's taken notice of Ruth and is attentive to her. But there's more to it than that. Naomi has picked Boaz, not randomly. She picked him because she's aware of an ancient custom in Israel at that time. We know this because the word that she uses for relative when she said he's a close relative of ours is the word gael. And that word is often translated kingsman redeemer. The principle behind the gael has a particular purpose in the life of the Israelites. God set it up this way so that, that widows and orphans would be cared for. David Gusick says the Gael or the Kingsman Redeemer had responsibilities to fulfill under the law. He was responsible to buy a fellow Israelite family member out of slavery. He was responsible to be the avenger of blood, to make sure a murderer of a family member would, be, would answer to the crime. He was responsible to buy back family land that had been forfeited. He was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow. So the Kingsman Redeemer was important. And Naomi knew that Boaz would, would qualify as a Kingsman Redeemer. So she didn't just have her eye on him because he had been kind to, 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 to Ruth and, and that he was a wealthy man. That wasn't the reason. The reason was because he qualified as a Kingsman Redeemer. And since Boaz was a goel for the family of Elimelech, Naomi knew that Ruth could appeal to him on that basis. Remember, there's no man in Ruth's life. Normally, a man would negotiate. A man would step in and, and, and really be the go-between. But that wasn't possible here. And so Naomi knew she had to send Ruth in on her own. And so she said to Ruth, wash and anoint yourself and put on the best garment. 
What that means is, remember, Ruth was a widow. She would have been dressed as a widow. She would have been in a time of mourning. And Ruth is saying to her, put those garments aside and put on your best garment and wash yourself and anoint yourself, smell really good, and let him know that your time of mourning is over and you are available for another relationship. And so Naomi instructed her to go to Boaz on the threshing floor under the cover of night. And, and she said, wait till he eats and he, he drinks a little bit so he's feeling good and then lie down at his feet. And laying down at his feet was a gesture of humility. It was a gesture of submission. That's an interesting posture to me because, you see, if Ruth knew that he was a kinsman redeemer, she could have appealed to him and demanded that he fulfill that obligation. I love that she wasn't demanding. I love that she took a position of humility, a position of submission. So in verse 9, we see that Boaz awakens in the middle of the night and, and he, he sees somebody laying at the foot of his bed. And he says, who is it? And Ruth says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. She uses the word Gael. And when she calls him a close relative, Boaz would have known what she was implying. She asked him in verse 9 to take him under her wing. Uh, this, I believe, is a play on words. If you'll recall, in, in chapter 2, Boaz commended her for, for coming under the wing of Yahweh. Remember, he, he was saying, you're under the protection of Yahweh, and Yahweh is blessing you because I'm just going to tell you, you are always blessed when you run to Jesus. You're always blessed. And so Ruth was using that same language, and now she was saying it and implying it about Boaz. She was saying, take me under your wing. Take me under your, the protection of your wing. But what it really was was a marriage proposal, and Boaz would have known that. It's interesting, I read a commentary that said even today, in this present day, when a Jew marries a woman, he throws the, the edge of his skirt or his talit, his prayer shawl, over his bride to imply that she will always be under his protection. Oh man, I'm just here to tell you that that is your job as a husband, to protect that woman. To, that's God's word to you, to protect her, to keep her safe. But Boaz would have known that Ruth meant more than just that. Boaz would have known that it was a proposition for, for marriage. And surprisingly, Boaz agrees. He agrees to perform the duty of a kinsman redeemer. And, and we end chapter 3 and we're hopeful because we think finally, because I'm just going to tell you, there is an end to suffering. Finally, we think Ruth's suffering is over and life is taking a turn for the better. And you just want to cheer and, and you celebrate that finally uh, life is looking better for her. And then all of a sudden, Boaz throws in a monkey wrench. He said, oh, I am a close relative, but there is one who is closer than I. And so the chapter ends, leaving the reader with a cliffhanger, wondering if Boaz and Ruth will be able to marry or if the other relative will claim his right to redeem. And that's where chapter 4 picks up. And so flip over to chapter 4. And remember that chapter 3 ended with Naomi assuring Ruth that Boaz would not rest until he got this matter settled. And so right away in verse 1, we see that Boaz is up and he went to the gate and he sat down there. And that's really important. Don't just skip by those words. You see, the gate of the city was a place where legal transactions took place. Uh, Rideout says it was a place of rule where all matters were settled and all transfers made. The city gates were the center of city life, and here all business transactions were conducted, and people gathered and, uh, for the administration of justice. And Scripture says that Boaz went up to the gate, and he sat down there. When he sat down, uh, that was a message that he had some business to take care of. He was there to conduct business. He had come for a purpose. But look at the very next verse, and don't miss this. This is so important to this story. Look at the word behold. Uh, verse, uh, let's just look here. It says, um, 
Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, a close relative of whom Boaz has spoken came by. Anytime you see behold in the word of God, you know with the Christmas story come, behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born. Anytime you see behold in the scripture, it's there for a purpose. It's an attention getter. It's like, a, it's like the author is saying, make sure you pay attention to what's coming because it's very important. Pay careful attention to what's to follow. So behold, a close relative of Boaz, the one that Boaz was speaking about, just happened to come by at just that exact time. Remember last week we talked about providence and how nothing just happens in your life. Do, do you know that? Are you convinced of that after last week's message that nothing just happens. God ordains, uh, God orchestrates everything. Even when you're out of God's will, he will bend over backwards to draw you back, to lure you back in. Nothing just happens. And it just so happened that the, that the other kinsman redeemer that Boaz had told Ruth about just happened to come by this busy city gate at just the time that Boaz sat down. Another coincidence? I think not. Another picture of God's amazing providence at work. Remember that Boaz was a man of great integrity and he went above and beyond to do what's right. Some commentators say that he didn't have to pursue this other kinsman redeemer, that he could have redeemed Ruth on his own. But I believe because he was a man of great integrity and character, he wanted to do right by Ruth and everything. One commentator said he didn't want to allow any place for scandal or someone to oppose him later on. Notice that scripture says that Boaz called this man friend. That bothers me because we know that Boaz knew this man because he, he referenced his, him in his conversation to Ruth. And yet we see that he calls him friend. And that sounds super nice until you look up that word in, in the original language and you realize the word friend there is a Hebrew idiom that means a certain unnamed person or place. It was like calling him Mr. So-and-so or John Doe. The idiom is used when the writer, get this, did not deem it essential to give the person's name. <laughs> I love that. The expositor's Bible commentary says, it does not mean that Boaz did not know this man's name. The use of this idiom is always deliberate. Hear me. The use of this idiom is always deliberate on the part of the storyteller. So it tells me that it's not that Boaz did not know this man's name. It's that the author of the book of Ruth said he's not even worthy to include his name in this scripture. I love that because remember, this kinsman redeemer, his responsibility was to redeem Amalek's name. So that there could be an heir to carry on Amalek's name. Are you with me? And so it's like the author was saying, since you don't think it's, it's necessary to, for Amalek's name to go on in history, we're going to take yours out of history. We're not even going to include it in this passage. Do you not love the word of God? The story turns out this closer relative, Boaz offered him the land and he won it, Naomi's land. And then uh, Boaz threw in and he said, now, if you take the land, you need to know that come, there, there's a woman that comes with it and she's a Moabite. And then suddenly the story shifts and the kinsman redeemer decides that he doesn't want to be the kinsman redeemer any longer and that Boaz can have that right. And you'll remember the story where he takes off his sandal and he hands it to Boaz. They're making a transaction. He's saying, I'm giving up my right to redeem. You can redeem if you'd like to. I'm sure those words delighted Boaz. In verse 9, we see that Boaz calls the elders together and, and he wants to give a witness just like we give witnesses today in, in a wedding or a marriage ceremony. And Boaz is doing the same thing and he's saying, let it be known that I am going to choose to redeem Ruth and, and this family. He was legally sealing the deal. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Oh, I love this. She's barren for 10 years. 
not able to have a child the entire time that she was married to Naomi's son. And, and then all of a sudden, she meets this kinsman redeemer and God blesses her and, and she conceives a child. And Naomi, we, we see the picture in, in chapter four where Ruth takes this baby that she's had and she lays it on Naomi's lap. And that's how chapter four closes. And I love it because Naomi, the woman who was once empty, has now got a lap full of redemption. Isn't that just the way our God works? I wish we had another week that I could go over the story and I could show you all the pictures of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer and how they work together. It's fascinating. If you've never studied it, look into it. But verse 15 says, And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. I love that because I'm a grandma. And this was Naomi's grandson that was laid on her lap. And, and, the, and the townspeople said, may he be a restorer of life to you. You've been robbed, Naomi. You've had so much loss in your life. And may this child be a restorer of life. Can I just tell you that God restores all things. I don't care if you're sitting here tonight and you have lost so much. I don't care how full of pain and heartache your life has been. Can I tell you about the one who is able to restore all things? He delivers lights in restoring. And so he said, may he be a restorer of life to you. And, and I have grandsons, and I'm just going to tell you that they, they bring me so much joy. They really have been a restorer of life for me. So I understand that. But if this story ended right there, if it ended with, with Naomi holding a beautiful grandson, it would be an amazing picture of redemption and restoration. But it doesn't end there. The God who does immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine isn't finished yet. In verse 17, it says, and they called his name Obed. They called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see, God was not only working powerfully in the lives of two hurting women in Israel, he was creating a lineage that would bring about the greatest king in Israel and ultimately bring about the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the long-awaited Messiah. You see, he was in Ruth's lineage. Do, do you love that? Do you love that he restores all things. If you pick up this story in chapter one, if you haven't been with us as we studied it, chapter one is full of pain and heartache and death and loss. And it's, it's just a sad, sad story. And it looks hopeless. And you think, God, where are you? And why aren't you working in these people's lives? And in chapter two, you start to see that he's been working behind the scenes all along. Can I tell you, no matter how bad your life is, God is working behind the scenes in ways you can't even dream or imagine. I promise you that. I promise you that. And he wants to restore all things. And if you trust him, he will do immeasurably more than you can ever ask or imagine. I, I just want to ask you, as we come to the end of this series on the book of Ruth, we need to ask ourselves, what is the main point God wants us to take from this story? For me, I've been so blessed by the picture of providence in this book. It's helped me so much with things that I'm going through in my life. Providence is God's got divine guidance and his care. It's God working behind the scenes when you can't see him. The book of Ruth opens with famine, bad choices, and a lot of death. But it closes with a wedding, new life, redemption, and restoration. The story begins with weeping and a dark night of the soul, and it ends with absolute joy. One of my very favorite scriptures is Psalm 30, uh, verse 5. It says, weeping endures for a moment, <laughs> but joy comes in the morning. And that's so true, and it's so true about this story. Spurgeon says it best about that verse. He says, weeping may endure for a night, but nights don't last forever. And we see that in the book of Ruth. You see, some of you are in a dark night of your soul, but I just need to tell you some good news tonight. Dark nights don't last forever. Joy comes in the morning, and there will be a morning. And I don't know what kind of season you're in right now, but I can tell you that it's a season that will pass. 
as you trust in the Lord and lean on him and rely on him. Ruth is a beautiful testimony of that truth. I believe that there are blessings. I know some of you think I'm just crazy, but I really believe with all of my heart that the way to blessing is to follow the Lord, that his pleasant path really does lead to pleasant places. There aren't any shortcuts to a good life. It's his way, and his way leads to life. And when we veer from that path, we find barrenness. We find emptiness. John Piper summarizes it best. I really like this. He says, the book of Ruth wants to teach us that God's purposes for the life of his people is to connect us to something greater than ourselves. God wants us to know that when we follow him, our lives always mean more than we think they do. For the Christian, there is always a connection between the ordinary events of life and the stupendous work of God in history. Everything we do in obedience to God, no matter how small, is, is significant. It is part of a cosmic plan which God is painting to display the greatness of his power and his wisdom to the world and to the principalities and powers of heavenly places. The deep satisfaction of a Christian life is that it's not given over to trifles. Serving a widowed mother-in-law, gleaning in a field, follow, falling in love, having a baby. For the Christian, these things seem, these things are all connected to eternity. They're all part of something so much bigger than they seem. I read a scripture a few weeks ago that talked about when we obey God and we follow God's way. It's a loose translation of the scripture I read how we're testifying to the powers and the principalities of the goodness of the Lord. I'm so competitive. I, I can't even tell you how competitive I am. Like sports, I want to win all the time. Board games, I have to be the winner or I quit. I am competitive, <laughs> and I like to win. And when I saw that scripture, that when I obey God and I do what's right, that it testifies to the powers and the principalities and the forces of evil, I'm like, oh, my goodness. I'm there. Because you see, he's robbed my life so much. The enemy, and we have an enemy of our soul, and he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's his mission, to take you out, to make you question the goodness of God, to destroy your life. If he can't keep you out of hell, he's going to make you live like hell here on earth. Do you know that? And that's his whole goal. But we have a good, good father who's working a plan at the same time. And he's luring and he's drawing you and he's making all things work together for his good and for your good and his glory. He's got a purpose, a purpose that before you were ever even born, before you were ever even conceived, a thought in your mama's mind, he knew you. And he put a plan and a purpose in your life. He marked you with purpose. And see, the enemy, you take your first breath in this world, and he's like, let's kill that purpose. Let's get after that purpose and destroy it. Let's make them null and void. We can't keep them for out of heaven, but we can sure destroy that purpose. Can I promise you, every one of you are purposed. Every one of you have a destiny that God put inside of you that's for something great. And the enemy's only job is to get you to veer off that path and put you on a destiny that is in opposition to what God said you were created for. And he wins. But the Bible says all we have to do is acknowledge God. When I acknowledge somebody, you know, I'm, I'm not chatting to them. I'm not, I'm not spending all kinds of time with them. If I'm just acknowledging them, I'm walking down the street and I acknowledge them. I'm looking that way and acknowledge them. That's all you have to do is acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. That providence will be at work in your life. That's awesome. See, I love this story because it starts out looking bleak and hopeless with more pain than you can ever imagine, and I've had a life like that. I don't, I don't know what your life looks like. I can only, I can only testify about mine. I know what it's like to live in the muck and the mire. I lived there for a very long time. 
I know what it's like to have God pull me out of the muck and mire and put my feet back on solid ground. I know what it's like when Paul says, I'm the chief among all sinners. I know what that's like. I feel like that myself. I know what it's like to be blind, to be lost. But I am here to tell you that God is the redeemer of all things. And if you just look his way, if you just acknowledge him, he will restore, he will redeem, he will renew, he will revitalize your life because he is the only life giver. I look for life in a lot of places. And let me trust you. He, let me tell you that he is the only life giver. I don't say that because I'm some crazy Christian preacher. I say that because I lived it and I've watched him redeem. And if he can redeem the likes of me, you're a piece of cake. You are a piece of cake. If he can take a Moabite woman who didn't even fear him, who had been through horrible pain and heartache, he could fast forward her life and bless her amazingly so much so that she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Mm. That's my show-off God at work. And he is not a respecter of persons. If he did it for me, if he did it for Ruth, he'll do it for you. I'm going to ask Lisa to come and close. And I really want to challenge you to begin looking at this uh, this book and, and really uh, delving into it and, and looking at the picture of Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. Taking a foreign bride, I was a foreigner, making her his, providing, protecting, caring for. Just a beautiful picture. So, so spend some time studying that.